Welcome to EM ToxCast. My name is Rich Hamilton, and today we're going to be talking about congestive heart failure. Uh, we'll be reviewing the pathophysiology, diagnosis, and management of CHF, and specifically CHF and acute decompensated heart failure. CHF heart failure is a, a big issue for emergency medicine. There are many, many patients that we see often uh, on a recurring basis uh, in the emergency department. Six million patients in the U.S. have heart failure. It's the most common discharge diagnosis for patients over the age of 65, and accounts for 60% of all healthcare expenditures in the U.S., and sadly, it's five-year mortality is 50% for all New York Heart Association classes, and this rivals uh, some of the cancers we diagnose. So we need, really need to be uh, proficient with CHF and acute decompensated heart failure. And I think a very helpful way of thinking of the two conditions is to separate them into what I call a CHF exacerbation, which happens over days to weeks and generally represents the worsening of a chronic condition and acute decompensated heart failure, in which case the patient is uh, generally getting worse over, uh, over a few hours, even uh, less than that. In general, the pathophys of acute decompensated heart failure is best understood by understanding the hemodynamics, uh, and those are affected by three things. The pump, uh, the afterload, the systemic circulation and its resistance, and the preload, uh, the um, uh, pressure at which the blood is entering into the heart. Generally, we like to think of CHF as occurring after some ischemic event, uh, such as myocardial ischemia. Uh, this results in a reduction of the ability of the heart to pump blood. Uh, compensatory systemic vascular resistance increases. We get increased afterload. Because of the poor pump, uh, we get a backup uh, and an increase in the preload. And of course, that ends up causing pulmonary congestion, what we recognize as pulmonary edema from um, ADHF. There are a lot of terms out there. It's useful to be uh, familiar with them. Uh, I think the most useful term is heart failure with preserved or reduced EF. Patients who have heart failure with preserved EF uh, are generally diastolic failure patients. Their EF is normal, but they have a non-compliant ventricle. So they might be hypertrophic, restrictive, or even have a aortic stenosis. And there is heart failure with reduced EF, and those are generally systolic failure patients, like the one we just described, who perhaps had a um, ischemic event uh, impairing the contractility of the heart. Uh, we do talk about right-sided failure. Number one cause of right-sided failure is a failure of the left side of the heart, but it can happen in isolation, uh, results in backing up. Uh, onto the right side. So through the portal circulation, you'll see peripheral edema. You may not see any pulmonary edema if it's isolated to the uh, right side of the heart. Core pulmonale, which is a form of RV failure, is a consequence of pulmonary hypertension. So much like the afterload of the LV, if you have pulmonary hypertension, you will see core pulmonale 
uh, as a form of right-sided failure. In general, though, uh, RV and LV failure go hand in hand. And uh, knowing this helps um, uh, sort some things out for you, I think, clinically. It really doesn't immensely impact treatment with maybe the exception of just managing um, CHF exacerbations. There's also some benefit in thinking of it in terms of the old Frank Starling curve uh, and realizing that um, catechols will push our Frank Starling curve upward and give us a higher cardiac output. And then in heart failure, our Frank Starling curve flattens out, may, meaning that small changes if in the left ventricular and diastolic pressure can uh, precipitously drop the cardiac output. So, uh, again, systolic failure, you think about ischemia. Uh, you start to think about um, uh, this dysfunction resulting in an uh, uh, increase in afterload uh, and a resultant increase in preload causing pulmonary edema. Uh, and then in diastolic failure, more of a non-compliant heart uh, with uh, uh, rising in uh, preload. Uh, and then a uh, increase in uh, the patient's edema and pulmonary edema, uh, all of which generally result in the same sort of looking patient uh, when they when they come to the emergency department. Now there is uh, something to be said for uh, you know not being completely wedded to the idea that one begets the other, and there's some evidence that the effect on the heart uh, and the systemic circulation is probably happening simultaneously. Uh, for example, um, the hypertensive crisis uh, uh, can be the precipitation of uh, uh, acute decompensated heart failure. Uh, in, in either case, uh, they seem to go hand in hand and result in a release of natriuretic peptides, which try to um, exert a, uh, uh, a uh, ameliorative effect on, on the uh, acute decompensated heart failure symptoms. If you look at wedge pressures and cardiac index, uh, wedge pressure goes up a great deal first before cardiac index is, is tremendously affected, but they really, in fact, are affected uh, almost simultaneously, um, and then um, both worsen until the patient starts to develop um, cardiogenic shock. Traditionally, we always think of managing these as using some pathomimetics to uh, improve the patient's cardiac output, so uh, milrinone, dobutamine, and those types of pressors, uh, and then diuretics and nitrates if we don't want to really push the patient out of a shock state and just prefer to manage their hemodynamics with afterload and preload reduction and then volume decrease. And we should talk a little bit about this concept of fluid overload, fluid retention, uh, and what that myth is all about. Uh, we, we can get a little bit wrapped around just how much fluid the patient has, quote, retained and how much fluid the patient has, quote, put out uh, when we're dealing with acute decompensated heart failure and uh, patients with CHF. But if you need any paradigm to sort of explore why hemodynamics are more important, just think back to that um, end-stage renal disease patient who came in with pulmonary edema who completely turned around with IV nitro without a single drop of fluid and exiting their body. Uh, I have seen this uh, in addition with the same type of patient who've gotten IV enalapril. 
uh, and, uh, you know, uh, watch them just literally improve in front of my eyes prior to, to going to hemodialysis to, quote, get the excess fluid off. Two other facts I think are important. One, acute kidney dysfunction improves after you decrease the afterload. So if you improve the afterload, you'll watch renal function improve uh, in these patients. They look like they have uh, acute kidney injury on chronic, but in fact, you decrease the afterload, they start perfusing their kidneys, and um, their uh, situation improves dramatically. And some research that showed that only about half of heart failure patients uh, gain more than a couple pounds before they come in. A, a small portion gain five pounds or more, but most just gain a couple of pounds, uh, which really would not reflect a major change in fluid status. Um, uh, you know, we do uh, sometimes attribute uh, a lot of uh, volume changes uh, to the cause. But I think if we go back to our uh, thinking uh, and teaching, uh, you know, on the wards and on rounds and dividing patients into the, the traditional wet, dry, warm, cold approach, I think we can get a better understanding of why we think some patients really benefit from diuresis and others absolutely will not. So if you think of wet, dry as a continuum, and by dry, we mean, you know, not in fluid pulmonary edema all the way down to dehydrated. Uh, and by warm and cold, we mean uh, hypertense all the way down to shock. And the warm, dry patient is probably that CHF exacerbation patient, right? That's the patient that comes in, little dyspnea exertion, orthopnea, not feeling well, blood pressure a little bit elevated, those folks generally only need an adjustment of their medications and in many fact in many cases in my practice actually restarting their medications uh, gets them on the on the straight and narrow uh, those patients often uh, it is helpful to know if the EF is preserved or reduced because uh, maximizing their carvedilol uh, is an important step in managing a CHF exacerbation along with diuretics now, we sometimes take this diuretic approach and we push it a little too far when we get into the wet, warm, or wet, cold patient uh, because those patients uh, do not perfuse their kidneys well and will not really benefit from diuresis until you've decreased their afterload. So the wet and warm patient is that 210 over 120 sweaty um, you know, breathing fast, full of rails patient who needs to be vasodilated and then given some diuretic once their kidney perfusion has improved. Uh, and then the wet, shocky patient who really may need some milrinone or dobutamine uh, to go along with uh, an ACE inhibitor. Uh, and uh, then ultimately you can add the diuretic. Uh, the dry, cold patient not as common as, uh, as uh, the other patients, but it's still uh, uh, a portion of who we treat. And these are folks who, in fact, may be intravascularly depleted. So you can have poor kidney for perfusion from having too high an afterload, but you can also be, in, in a sense, intravascularly depleted. And oddly enough, they may need a little fluid bolus uh, to add to their uh, milrinone dobutamine uh, to improve their uh, cardiac index. About half of all heart failure patients are, in fact, uvolemic. So think about that next time you pull out 200 milligrams of Lasix.
A very small portion are hypovolemic, and the rest are, are pretty much overloaded. Don't forget that renin-angiotensin uh, uh, is the big mediator for hypertension and CHF, and that it is the renin-angiotensin system that is the heart of all of it, hemodynamics and fluid retention, right? Vasoconstriction, sodium and water retention, uh, are all modulated by angiotensin-converting enzymes and angiotensin-2. So if you start thinking about your CHF patient as the warm and dry patient, you realize that your habit of giving a little diuretic or adjusting the medication works perfectly well for them. There's no problem with that uh, when they need it, but that if you have an acute decompensated heart failure patient, then you are dealing with a, a hemodynamic situation that really is going to be a challenge and will not respond to a little bit of uh, change in medication. So how do we make the diagnosis? Well, this is why I still walk around with a stethoscope around my neck because I, I can uh, put this on and listen to the rails. I can also use an ultrasound and look for B lines. And I also, when I'm seeing a CHF patient, We'll throw the ultrasound on the belly and look at the IVC to see how plump or flat it is uh, to help to find that patient who that, that unusual patient who might be a little volume depleted. We'll look at the chest X-ray and look for cephalizations, cephalization and curly B lines, and then we'll do some lab work, you know, cardiac workup, BNP, troponin, etc. Uh, we do know that uh, there is a new drug now, Entresto, which is affecting the BNP. Uh, Nutresto uh, is uh, an inhibitor of niprisoline, and niprisoline is what breaks down BNP. So if you break, if you inhibit that breakdown, uh, the beta natriuretic peptide will remain elevated, and in theory, this will have some salutary effect on heart failure. Um, and Tresto is a combination of um, uh, an angiotensin blocker, valsartan, and sacubitril, the niprisoline uh, inhibitor. The tendency to, uh, uh, there's a trend towards switching to NT-proBNP because Entresto uh, will not, uh, in theory, uh, inhibit or, or, or not result in an increase in NT-proBNP. Uh, this might be an overstated problem. Uh, there are some evidence that suggests that although BNP will rise after you start, then Tresto, it may sort of like stabilize. Uh, and um, whatever you choose to use, uh, BNP or NT-pro-BNP, you can really pick some nice cutoffs based on all the research that's out there, add it to your clinical judgment, and really do a good job of predicting who does have and who doesn't have congestive heart failure. So a BNP of less than 100 um, or an NTP pro, NT pro BNP of less than 300 has a 90% negative predictive value for congestive heart failure. Uh, remember that uh, patient uh, with high BMI will have a slightly lower BNP, but Studies that looked at this uh, really uh, did not really cone down on BMI. It's just a little fact to know. Uh, renal failure might increase your BN BNP, as you would expect. If the BNP is above 400 or the NT-pro-BNP NT is above 900 or 1800, depending upon age cutoff, then you have a 90% positive predictive value. 
And both of those improve dramatically when you add clinical judgment. And if you take the BNP and add your judgment, which generally underperforms BNP, uh, you will do a pretty accurate job of figuring out who has congestive heart failure and who does not. And that becomes very, very helpful in patients with pulmonary hypertension and COPD, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, if we think of our warm, dry patient who will be, you know, dyspneic, but really not d demonstrating dramatic, uh, obvious distress, we have an idea of what we're going to do there. When we think of our wet and warm patients sweating with a high blood pressure, we know that our blood pressure goes up and we begin to sweat and we get very aggressive treating them. The wet and cold patient is trying to die, so we try to uh, really hit them with, um, you know, vasoactive support. And then the dry and cold patient, we have to be a little bit on guard for uh, and maybe take a look at that IVC, scan it uh, on inspiration and expiration, see if it collapses and see if we can estimate what the uh, CVP is. Nice plump IVC with no collapse really suggests uh, that you have uh, a patient with a very high CVP and um, the reverse uh, uh, for a patient with a low IVC diameter and total collapse. That's the patient that, oddly enough, might need some fluid to improve from their CHF. Here's a board question for you. What's the first sign of CHF on a chest radiograph? The answer is cephalization. Cephalization is when the, vessels, the vessel caliber size is the same in the upper lung fields as it is in the lower lung fields. Uh, you will see signs of vascular congestion. You'll see curly B lines, uh, et cetera. Um, and uh, those can definitely help you out. Pleural effusion is a great tip off. Increased cardiothoracic uh, ratio is also an excellent one. The curly B lines will be out laterally. Curly A lines around the hilum. And there are such a thing as curly C lines. Everybody, I believe, thinks that those are just multiple curly B lines lying on top of each other. The traditional management of acute decompensated heart failure has always focused on early and very large doses of diuretics, lots of oxygen to get that sat to 100% to decrease the hypoxic burden on the heart, using morphine as a sympatho, sympatho, uh, sympatholytic, uh, reducing the uh, symp sympathetic response, and high-dose nitro, which has been around for quite a while, using sublingual, 400 mic, you know, sublingual tab over five minutes, repeating that Q5 minutes. Many of us have been administering IV load fashion uh, nitroglycerin for acute decompensated heart failure for decades, starting at a very high dose and titrating that down. And BiPAP for respiratory failure has been around for quite a while. Uh, but... Those traditional managements are changing, and we're trying to optimize and get rid of some of the, uh, you know, uh, old lore and replace it with evidence. And so the first thing that is going is high dose uh, and early diuretics. Uh, not going to be helpful, first of all. Second of all, uh, we'll sit in the circulation until the kidneys begin perfusing uh, and then go into effect. So it becomes sort of like a... Uh, ticking time bomb waiting for the kidneys to perfuse. Uh, high flow oxygen to achieve 100% saturation. Well, I do like oxygen, but the goal of 100% sat, maybe not what I'm going to be going for, especially if we start thinking about our BiPAP situation. 
Morphing as a sympatholytic? No way. There are multiple studies that show that it has a negative outcome uh, on morbidity and mortality. You really just need to drop that right out of the um, uh, approach. High-dose nitro? Yep, we're using that, you know, a sublingual every five minutes. Uh, and... Um, Maybe even doing uh, like some of the EMS uh, crews do and just putting three sublinguals under the tongue. Uh, that'll give you uh, 1,200 milligrams with, uh, you know, an 80% absorption rate. Uh, that's like uh, giving a patient a, uh, close to a gram of nitro over five minutes. So that's a nice nitro load. Remember, patients generally tolerate, can tolerate as much as 2,000 mics of nitro, you know, two milligrams uh, in these situations. BiPAP for respiratory failure, well, we're taking that off, but we're putting it all back on. We're putting BiPAP early as active therapy, not just respiratory failure. We're keeping the high-dose nitro, and we're starting high and titrating down uh, like we've done in the past to get that blood pressure redu reduction. I like ACE inhibitors. I use them every time. I use them early. Uh, you could consider them as your second go-to uh, once you see whether nitro is going to work. And then the diuretics we will put in once the hemodynamics have improved. And given the sort of recent discussion about door-to-diuretic time, which I think is somewhat misguided, I would suggest you give that dose of diuretics just before you call the uh, cardiologist so you can say you've done it and everyone will feel better. The high flow oxygen, I throw that back in there just to relieve hypoxia, but given that I'm throwing uh, BiPAP in there on, in most cases of severe acute decompensated heart failure, it, it often doesn't become a real issue. Well, it is EM Toxcast. There's got to be a little toxicology in there. And ACE inhibitors, Captopril, was derived from Bothrop's Jararaca, the uh, Brazilian viper. Uh, when uh, you are bitten by a snake, it is not uncommon to get angioedema. And when you take Captopril, it is not uncommon to get angioedema. Sublingual Captopril has a great effect. It starts working uh, within uh, 10 minutes. Uh, it's uh, absorbed and starts to have a clinical effect within 20. And quite a way back in the time machine when the Macarena was a hit song, I did a little study that showed that within 30 minutes, if you added Captopril in a randomized double-blind approach to the standard regimen, uh, patients got quite a bit better if you were using the clinical metrics we created. Be careful, ACE inhibitor angioedema. Look for allergies. Uh, in particular, look for that crike scar. You probably don't want to give that patient an ACE inhibitor if you notice that. That may have been from their ACE inhibitor they started on when they were a heart failure patient in the past. Now, you will hear about ACE hypotension. And this phenomenon, I find, has is often seen in the intensive care unit after escalating or multiple doses of diuresis or diuretics. And that, is be, that creates an increasing uh, renin-angiotensin activation. The ACE sort of lyses that and causes a drop in blood pressure. Now, what's interesting about ACE in, inhibitor uh, hypotension is that cerebral, coronary, and renal blood flow are relatively preserved. And so when folks call me up saying, like, ah, oh, I gave this patient IV and allopurone, their blood pressure is 95, I say, how do they look? They say, well, oddly enough, they look fine. 
Uh, beta blockers probably don't have a role in acutely decompensated heart failure as of this moment, but carvedilol has been a big positive uh, effect on heart failure. Um, and uh, working with the, the patient's cardiologist, making sure they, uh, the CHF exacerbation is optimized on carvedilol is an important thing to do. So final word, you know, think warm, dry, wet, cold. Uh, if you put your patient in that CHF category, um, then just restart or adjust their medications. And that a squirt of diuretic at that point is probably completely appropriate. If they have acute decompensated heart failure, though, think about all the hemodynamics you've got to fix first, right? High-dose nitro, BiPAP, an ACE inhibitor, uh, maybe just one single dose of enalapril early on, uh, and uh, you will be all set. Questions I typically get. Uh, I often get a couple of questions about the use of nitro in aortic stenosis and some recent, uh, and for that matter, afterload reduction in aortic stenosis. And some recent data suggests that although there is hypotension in those settings, it is not clinically relevant. So I worry a little less about trying to listen for that uh, rumble of aortic stenosis when I'm trying to get a patient out of the uh, cupulmonary edema jam. High-dose nitro, uh, sublingual versus IV, I think either is fine. And uh, probably your best bet is a little bit of uh, moisture under the tongue and three sublinguals while you're trying to search for that IV uh, in a patient with acute pulmonary edema. Um, you can pull a little nitro out of the uh, drip bag and do uh, boluses via IV. But if you've got the sublingual route, why bother? You know, put it right under the patient's tongue or snag the uh, paramedic's nitro spray. Well, I hope that was helpful to you. I enjoyed talking about it and talking about heart failure. Uh, as always, you can uh, hit me on Twitter at RJHamiltonMD. Thanks for listening. Give us a like on iTunes if you're so inclined, and we'll talk to you soon.